Uh, hello again, and welcome to Sierra Athletics Media Podcast. Um, I'm Calvin Reed. I'm a senior news editor at Publishers Weekly, and I'm a co-editor of this podcast, along with uh, Francis C. Harris and Charles S. Harris Jr. Uh, how you guys doing? How you doing, Calvin? Uh, you we're doing? back. We've been away for a little while, but we're, we're back right now. Uh, and uh, the brothers Harris are also the co-authors of the pictorial history of the African American athlete, a four-volume uh, history uh, and work in progress that, that does just what the title said. It is a, an an extraordinary pictorial, uh, biographical encyclopedia of the African American athlete, both in the college ranks. And in professionals, uh, it's uh, a work in progress right now, but it is a, it will be available. And the stories and the accounts uh, and um, uh, the history that you hear on this show, uh, they're all based on the research done in the pictorial history of the African-American uh, athlete. Am I right about that? That is correct. All right, right there you go. So just to give you some background, um, but for this, uh, in our latest episode of Sierra Athletics Media, we are going to be looking at the history of black baseball. Uh, and um, we did a little bit of this in our previous episode, in episode um, five. Uh, we began this talk, uh, particularly with some of the names you're going to hear tonight. But this particular podcast, we're going to focus really on two names. Um, uh, I guess these guys would be the fathers of black baseball. And what we're talking about is Saul White uh, and Rube Foster. And we talked a little bit about them in the last podcast. uh, But we're going to talk um, uh, much more about both of them today. So shall we start off with Saul White? Um, Yes. Yeah, Francis, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Well, King Solomon uh, Saul White was an infielder, manager, and an executive and a historian about black baseball. He was born in 1868 in Bellevue, Ohio, as one of five children. And uh, his father died when he was uh, young, and his mother supported him and his four siblings as a washerwoman. Uh, there's not much talk about his stories about his childhood, but he began playing baseball as a youngster. Uh, during that time in Bel Air, Ohio, there were three white baseball teams, the Lilies, the Bel Air Globes, and uh, the Globes were probably uh, who Saul White was um, very much a fan of when he was young. And so he went to a game, uh, I think when he was maybe about 12 or 13, and uh, the shortstop for the Globes got injured, and the manager uh, just put him in. You know, mm-hmm. said, you know, you replace him. So that's where his baseball career probably started. And he became a professional in 1887, uh, playing for the Pittsburgh Keystones, mm-hmm. and they were in the League of Colored Baseball Clubs. Um, so now, can I can I just jump in for a second here? Was um, the color line was was segregation uh, uh, pervasive in in nineteenth century uh, I can only, baseball? I can only think of maybe uh, five or six players uh, that played within the majority of white baseball leagues, mm-hmm. and uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker. Right, of course, very yes, yeah. obviously a very famous name, uh, Fleet Walker, mm-hmm. uh, his brother. Um, I think Robert Huggins, mm-hmm, uh, pitcher, mm-hmm. um, just three off the top hand. So there weren't 
a, a load of uh, African American players, mm-hmm. but there were some spread around. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, they had a, a league of colored baseball clubs. Mm-hmm. So this was basically just black baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he played left field and second base for the league, and the league uh, folded maybe after two weeks. So then um, he joined the Wheeling, Virginia, West Virginia Greenstockings, and they won the Ohio, Ohio State League. Excuse me. Played third base. Uh, after the season, the Ohio State League became, renamed the Tri-State League, and that league banned African Americans from uh-huh. playing in the league. And so it wasn't until Weldy Walker uh, and some other African Americans, uh, well, Waldy Walker primarily wrote a letter uh, to the officials of the league protesting this, and so uh, the league rescinded, and so Saul White uh, rejoined them. That's interesting. Yeah. They actually rescinded their their well, banning of well, black he, players. Well, well, the thing about it is, he wrote this letter, and it was uh, published in the Sporting News. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, I mean, excuse me, the Sporting Life. And oh, yeah. so, mm-hmm. um, was a precursor to sporting this. And, and so, uh, I guess when it became widely in public uh, pub- publicity, they, uh, the, the owners and I guess the league officials decided, hey, you know, Interesting. We, don't want to, we don't want to be known as this. Wasn't that simple later on. <laughs> <laughs> so, he was released after a few games in the league. And then, uh, from 1889 to 1891, he played for several times, several clubs in New York, Gorham's. York Color Gorehounds, which was in the Eastern Interstate League and the Cuban Giants. Uh, mm-hmm. He also attended Wilberforce University, and uh, he was listed as far as eighteen ninety six as being an athletic instructor hmm. at the university. Yeah. Played for the Columbia uh, uh, Chicago Columbia Giants, mm-hmm. and then he returned to the Cuban X Giants. And around nineteen o two is when he, along with Walter Schechter, Schlechter, and uh, 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 Harry Smith, the sports editor for the Philadelphia Tribune, as we discussed in the last episode, uh, they formed the Philadelphia Giants, and this was their premier African American mm-hmm. uh, uh, baseball team of the early 20th century. And you know, Rube Foster would would join the team, uh, I guess, around uh, uh, 1904. Mm-hmm. So the Giants were from 1904 to 1907. They were probably the best. Uh, black baseball team out there. I mean, they had a Hall of Famer, uh, Frank Grant, and they had Pete Hill and, and Grant Homer Johnson. But we discussed this yeah. uh, in the previous episode. And this was also, was this the first encounter between the two of them with Rube Foster? Well, Rube Foster, I think, yeah. Well, I think Rube Foster was well known. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, you know, Rube Foster had played with several teams and he was the top pitcher. Right there, and I think that was the basis of them. I mean, Rube Foster had played with the Leland Giants, mm-hmm. and Frank, he had gotten to, uh, even though Frank Leland was a mentor to him, he had gotten into some uh, uh, arguments with the pay and other things regarding with the uh, Leland Giants. So it was just natural, you know, for uh, Saul White and Walter Schechter to offer him money, more money, to come pitch for uh, the um, Philadelphia um, Giants. So, you know, he, and also you're playing with uh, all of these other great players in yeah. black baseball. So that was one of his basis for him coming and playing for the team. But uh, what Salt White is probably well, more well known for is 
1907 when he uh, wrote uh, The History of Colored Baseball, uh, Saul White's official baseball guide. And, and it yes. was edited by H. Walter Sutter. And, you know, it's a 128-page book, and it came, and contains all types of um, history with regard to blacks in baseball, African Americans in baseball. So chapters entitled The Colored Bla uh, Baseball, uh, the formation in 1885 of uh, the first uh, African-American professional baseball team, which was the Cuban Giants. Mm -hmm. uh, colored baseball as in a profession, uh, the color line he talks about. Um, and then Rube Forster wrote um, a chapter called right. How to Pitch. Mm -hmm. uh, Graham mm -hmm. Ron Johnson wrote a chapter on uh, the art and science of uh, pitching. And then... Uh, 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 I mean, if I can just jump in for a second mm -hmm. here. I mean, this is really a, a kind of a seminal work. I mean, it, it's really mm -hmm. kind of the first real history yes. of, of African American baseball. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and I, I, we what's really fascinating about it is that you know if you're a black baseball player looking to be a professional player, mm -hmm. uh, not only did you have to have um, chapters on how to pitch, how to hit, all the rest. You had to have a chapter on how are you going to make it mm -hmm. uh, in a world that divides out white players from black players. Of course. And of course. I think it's very interesting that this was was in, indeed a, a complete guide mm -hmm. to well, colored baseball, as well, he called it. I, yeah, well, I think it's, enough, it's also interesting that he has a, a, a chapter in there about colored players in the league because at this time, the color band had, you know, the, the, the band African-American players had been established. So uh, the National and the American League weren't of a professional baseball at the mm -hmm. time, had no black players. So he was basically in this chapter documenting, you know, even though African Americans are playing baseball and you know, uh, they're making money, the black ball player has to realize that there's only so far that he can go. Mm -hmm. He can look at uh, players like Honus Wagner and Rube Waddell, the pitcher, and he can look at these players and he can see that, you know, he's never going to get a chance to, even though he's a, a good ball player, he's never going to get a chance to play against them, you know. He's Excuse got, me. <coughs> yeah, guys like, you know, Hall of Fame showstop John Henry Lloyd, who everybody yeah. looked at and said, you know, everybody, white and black, that had seen him and played against him. He's got, because, you know, the black ball players played against the white major leaguers in Cuba mm -hmm. and, 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 and the, the, when the season had stopped. And so they were used to, uh, Rube Forster even had a, 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 an all-star team that played against some, uh, no, the Chicago American Giants right. played against all-star team of, 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 of ma white major leaguers in Chicago. And, you know, they played, you know, they beat them a couple of times. So I think what you're looking at is, you know, these guys are saying we're just as good. Yeah. And uh, which, which, which really went up to 1945. I mean, when Jackie Robinson, I mean, Jackie Robinson had an all-star team of Negro League players. Mm -hmm that went over to Cuba and played white ball players. I mean, they understood that they won the same level of playing, but they weren't getting out of the opportunity. Oh, yeah. And right. so that's what, you know, Saul White was basically um, talking well, about. The, the, I mean, certainly one of the most famous things about the Negro Leagues in some ways is is the the, the barnstorming uh, mm -hmm. teams and, of course, playing in the Caribbean, playing mm -hmm. in Cuba, mm -hmm. playing in uh, the Latin Leagues, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, they played as good or better than, mm -hmm. of course, white major leaguers. Right. And everybody knew it. Well, you know, you know you're know, you also talking about some of the Latin players and the Latin yeah. players. 
I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the Orlando Cepeda's father, mm-hmm. Pedro Cepeda, was an outstanding player. Luis Tian's father, you know, mm-hmm. the pitcher. His, 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 they, these, all of these guys were outstanding Latin players, and they probably could have played Major League Baseball. Oh, also. without a doubt. And it, wasn't there some tradition of either players um, claiming to be Latin or Cuban? Well, I think um, Indian was probably. Or, and, well, Indian yeah. was another one in order to play in the major leagues mm-hmm. because of course since American racism is completely irrational yeah. you can sort of name yourself another nationality mm-hmm. and then suddenly you were sort of an honorary white yeah um, well yeah. John McGraw the, the uh, New York Giants um, um, manager and also uh, owner tried to pass uh, Charles Grant off as an mm-hmm. Indian you know to, to say he was so good that you know he tried to say well this he's not black he's, he's Indian yeah. and, and it didn't it didn't go over yeah. But I mean, you know, this is as far, you know, they, if you've ever seen that movie, Bingo Long's Traveling mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the, all through the film, Fun but, movie. R- yeah, Richard Pryor is saying, you know, he's, he's a Latin ball player. He's yeah, Latin. <laughs> that's right, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, because that's how he's going to get in. And, and of course, there's James, uh, James Earl Jones yeah. as Josh Gibson, <laughs> you know, as, or as a Josh Gibson like yeah. character. I mean, they so, weren't, yeah, one of the great that time, yeah, power that hitters time, of all time. Yeah, they weren't. Uh, they weren't trying. They, I think that was how they were. Uh, uh, they get the story made. I think that's how Barry Gordy and Motown had to yeah. get this. They hadn't. It's the same where you know, um, um, Cotton Comes to Harlem. I mean, Chester Himes didn't write about grave coffin and grave in the books. They're they're serious mm-hmm. detectives, and these are people that. Chester Himes knew yeah, in Harlem. Sure. So mm-hmm. he was writing a, a, a serious story about these people, but they had to put some comedic yeah, well, edge on it sure. to make it, you know, that's Hollywood. Sure. You know. So, so look, let's, um, let's sort of wind up uh, Saul White's career. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously he was a, a kind of a giant and uh, ultimately made it into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened in his later years? Well, you know, he, uh, at 1909, he broke away with Walter Schechter here again. They had an argument over ownership and, I guess, payment. But he broke away uh, from their partnership. And uh, he then became the manager of the Brooklyn Royal Giants. He lasted one season. And then uh, he, the, they formed the uh, New York Lincoln Giants, and he was the manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, that team had uh, John Henry Lloyd and Spotwell Poles. And then uh, 1911, uh, he, that was a time that he had lured uh, Cannonball Dick Redding, who was an outstanding pitcher who was not in the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and Louis Santa to play for the Philadelphia, um, uh, from the Philadelphia Giants to play for the New York Lincoln Giants. So by 1912, he had retired from baseball. And uh, he did come back in 1921 to be the secretary of the Columbus Buckeyes of the Negro National League, but he only lasted a little while. Mm-hmm. And then um, he, for two years, you know, he he was with the um, Pure Giants of Cleveland, and then the Cle- this, a little small team called the Cleveland Browns that didn't last longer than, uh, and they were in the Negro National League. Mm-hmm. They didn't last long, and basically he wound up his uh, baseball career in 1926 as um, uh, coach with the New York Stars in the Eastern Color League. But uh, he went on to be a sports writer for the New York Age and for the New York Amsterdam News. And the Amsterdam News, yeah. there you go. Uh, and for quite some time. Uh, and then uh, he made the transition in August of 1955. Mm-hmm. 
At the he, age of 87. Yeah, he was 87. And, and then, you know, he, in 2006, he, along with about 16 other uh, Negro League players, was inducted to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I, you know, it took some time, but he finally He, he made it. Yeah. Uh, well, and you can say that about all of these uh, these great <laughs> players from the, from the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but clearly a giant uh, uh, and pioneer mm-hmm. in African-American baseball. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's jump very quickly over to Andrew Rube Foster. Foster, uh, also considered the father of black baseball, uh, a great pitcher as well as a great executive, yeah. um, tactician. Um, uh, Negro League teams uh, had a way of playing, and certainly the Chicago American Giants did. Yeah. So yeah, so we we talked a little about him in 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 the uh, the last episode. So I want to go into too much depth. So can, can we start around launching the Chicago American Giants? Sure thing. Yeah, sure thing, Calvin. Uh, well, first, uh, I think we talked a little bit about his playing days yeah. with the Leland Giants. Yes. Uh, and then in 1911, he had left the Leland Giants to uh, form the Chicago American Giants. Hmm. Um, and they started out as an independent baseball team consisting of African Americans. Uh, during this time, also, he formed a partnership with uh, John M. Squirling. Um, who was a Southside uh, saloon owner. And the interesting about uh, Skirling is that he was the son-in-law of Charlie Comiskey, and uh, he mm-hmm. was, a lot of people may know that he was the owner of the Chicago White Sox from, a brief moment, from um, the turn of the 20th century of 1901 to 1931. Uh, you know, and he uh, managed, uh, he was the owner of those uh, great Chicago White Sox team uh, before they uh, had that drought. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they went on to win the World Series, I think, back in 2008 or so. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, yes. um, Chicago White Sox played their home games on the South Side at South Side Park, uh, which was a ballpark located at 39th Street and uh, South Wentworth Avenue. Uh, from their inception until uh, like 1910, and then they moved to Kaminsky Park. Uh, and Kaminsky Park had a seating arrangement of about 15,000 spectators. And um, Skirling um, leased the park uh, and called it, renamed it uh, Skirling Park. And it uh, ironically became the home field of the Chicago American Giants. And they played their home games there uh, from 1911 up until 1940. Um, during this time, uh, Rue Foster was successful in uh, luring a lot of players from the Leland Giants and the Philadelphia Giants, which uh, Francis had talked about uh, with the Saul White uh, situation. Um, during his tenure uh, as the owner, manager, and uh, a player for the Giants, the Giants had uh, John Henry Lloyd, oh, yeah, uh, well, the great. Mm-hmm. who was in the Hall of Fame, of course. Uh, Preston Pete Hill was also in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Grant Holmwin Johnson, uh, who should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, another uh, person who went on to manage the uh, Chicago American Giants, uh, uh, Dave Malarcher, uh, right. mm-hmm. also a Hall of Famer, uh, Cristobal Torrient, uh, mm-hmm. who all of these guys just recently got inducted into the Hall of Fame, incidentally. Uh, first baseman, Lee, Leroy Grant. Um, he also had a, a second baseman by the name of Elwood Bingo DeMoss, uh, an outfielder by the name of Jelly Gardner, uh, an outfielder by the name of Jimmy Lemons, and a couple of other uh, players, Dave Brown, Frank Wigward, Rick Ware, uh, Poindexter Williams, and Sam Crawford. 
And uh, ironically, during this time, Ruth Foster uh, held the position of being the baseball manager of the team, and also he was the executive. Uh, and this, uh, of course, forced him to not really play as much for the team. Uh, but during this time span, uh, from 1911 to 1919, um, the, Chicago, the Chicago American Giants uh, won nine Western championships. Uh, they only lost uh, to the Indianapolis ABCs in 1916, who uh, ironically were managed by a man by the name of Charles Isham C.A. Taylor. Uh, he was actually a rival to Rube Foster. And um, a lot of uh, baseball historians know uh, the names of his uh, brothers who also played in the Negro Leagues. He had a brother by the name of Candy Jim Taylor, uh, Ben Taylor, and Johnny Taylor. Uh, and during this time, uh, the Chicago American Giants was billed as the greatest aggregation of colored baseball players in the world. All of these uh, things uh, went on for uh, some time as Rube Foster started to feel the need to form a league. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of this was based on the fact that uh, race relations during 1919 uh, between blacks and whites uh, resulted in uh, a violent period. Yeah, this was the Chicago was, riots, that, which were like completely awful. Correct. Yeah, that is correct. And um, it was also dubbed the Red Summer of 1919. Mm -hmm. So, um, during this time span, uh, Ruth Foster saw the need to improve African-American life, and he pushed for a formation of the Negro National League. Uh, so uh, in February of 1920, uh, at the Kansas City Colored YMCA, there was a meeting of uh, some representatives to, uh, with the intent of the formation of the Negro National League. And a lot of these uh, men, uh, I'm just going to go over a couple of guys that were there. Uh, J.L. Wilkerson, who was the owner of the uh, Kansas City Monarchs, he happened to be a white man, he's also in the Hall mm -hmm. of Fame. Uh, mm -hmm. Lorenzo Cobb, who was the secretary of the St. Louis Giants. Um, Charles Joe Green, who was the manager of the Chicago Giants, not to be confused with the Chicago right, yeah. Giants. I mean, we should remind people that yeah. during this time, the Giants' name was right. incredibly popular throughout the sport. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, I, primarily, I guess, because of John McGraw and the New York Giants. Okay. You okay. Know, um, but it, it, it's amazing how many teams were called Giants. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, generally speaking, it seemed to be because they were popular and the fans would pay attention to exactly. a team called Giants. Exactly. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. And it's funny that you mention that. I mean, I mean, we just we went over the Leland Giants, we went over the yes. Philadelphia Giants, yeah, the yeah. Human X Giants. Sure, there's uh, so many uh, uh, the St. Louis Giants, and then you know there was there were two teams. One was the Chicago American Giants, and one was the Chicago Giants. Yes. Um, also at this meeting was uh, Tenny Blunt, who um, later became the uh, president of the Negro National League. He was the owner of the Detroit Stars. Um, also, John Matthews uh, was a representative and the owner of a team called the Dayton Marcos. Uh, I also mentioned uh, uh, C.I. Taylor. He was at this meeting as well. Uh, uh, David Wyatt. He was a um, he was a former player with the Leland Giants, but he also was a newspaper reporter. Uh, Elwood Knox, who was also a newspaper reporter. Uh, Carrie B. Lewis, who also was a newspaper reporter for Chicago Defender. And another interesting name that was there also was um, Eliza Scott Sr who happened to be attorney for the Topeka, for, from Topeka, Kansas. And uh, I mentioned this man's name because um, he was very, very uh, important in the early uh, portion of the civil rights movement. Um, he, along with his three sons, uh, they were partners in a law firm 
uh, known as Scott, 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 and Jackson. And uh, two of his sons, John and Charles, uh, went on to uh, make history and assist in the 1951 U.S. court yeah, so case, it, gaining uh, that the, the went on to be part of the Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, I mean, this uh, is a very interesting sort of uh, convergence. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it's one more, uh, lets us know just how very often, you know, black professionals were moving through the culture in all kinds of different ways and hooking exactly. up in different kinds of ways. Because exactly. this is a very interesting notion to think that the, these, these attorneys yeah. uh, were also present to formation of the formation of the Negro National League, yes. uh, as well as in probably the most important. Well, you I, don't know, know, I don't know if the sons were there. I know Elijah um, Elijah okay. Senior was. Senior. Oh, okay. By the time Brown versus, because this is 1920, so you're talking about 34 years. Yeah, yeah, that, I yes, yeah. I think um, yeah. Elijah Scott Sr. Um, I'm leaping ahead a little yeah, bit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Elijah Scott Sr. did, I mean, he did a, uh, at the beginning, he, he did a little of the uh, pre-work. But I don't think at that time, I see. by that time, 34 years later, I don't think that he was doing a lot of... Uh, um, work where we were to, you know, um, yeah. you know, he was just advising. Right? I see. So I think just John and Charles were the ones that filed the case. Mm-hmm. You know. So uh, what can you tell us about the proceedings? What went on in this meeting? And I, you know, one thing I'm curious is that building still there? In, in, uh, in I think I, I don't know. I think the, the, what's uh, it? The Kansas City uh, uh, YMCA. YMCA. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's uh, just curious. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's uh, been designated yeah. a landmark. I mean, there's a lot of places in Kansas City that have been designated a mm-hmm. landmark, but then there are some places that have been torn down. So I don't know if that's necessarily yeah, uh, just curious a, about a historic landmark. But so yeah, so tell us about the proceedings. Uh, um, well, the at in, this first meeting. Well, the individuals that I named they became the co-drafters of the Negro mm-hmm. National League Constitution, mm-hmm. and the Constitution that they all went by is that uh, each team officer would pay. 500 uh, to bind that would bind them to the league and to this constitution. Uh, and they all agreed that Ruth Foster would be elected the president and secretary of the league, but he received no salary, which uh, I find that very. Uh, well, can I, can I jump in for a second? Because I've read other accounts, I mean, I've read some accounts, and I think the Wikipedia account really uh-huh. talks about how that there's some historians who sort of accuse. Foster kind of setting the league up to his benefit. Correct. So, well, I think I think that 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 I don't know if it was to his benefit. I do know that uh, he uh, that Timmy Blunt was uh, a uh, I guess a a, fa- a, a figurehead uh-huh. owner of the of the Detroit, Detroit Stars. Stars. Mm-hmm. I think that Rube Foster really controlled that baseball team. Interesting. And then, mm-hmm. You know, um, but you have to also note the fact that. You know, these some of these teams weren't. You know, the Chicago American Giants, because they played in, in their own ballpark mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they had their own fan base in Chicago on the South Side, that they made money on a regular basis. They also mm-hmm. played a lot of <laughs> white semi-professional teams because John Sherling also owned. And he was close friends with a lot of the white. Uh, semi-professional owners, mm-hmm. so he had a, a, a 
the Chicago American Giants and they barnstormed. Mm-hmm. So because they were the one of the first people, Duke Ellington made this years later, but they traveled in their own Pullman car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know they didn't have to. What they were going on the road to play people, they didn't have to stay in hotels like mm-hmm. the other teams did. Mm-hmm. The black hotels. They took the train there and they stayed. They cut the Pullman car off. Right. And then they stayed in the Pullman car, and then you know Duke Ellington did that yeah. also mm-hmm. to, to to not so as not, not have to deal with the segregated hotel and all that other stuff. So that that so what I, my point being that the Chicago American Giants were more financially stable yeah. than the other Dodgers teams, yeah. and yeah. those teams that couldn't make it or had trouble meeting the payroll or playing their players, mm-hmm. then Ruth Forster was able to. Pay out of his own pocket, mm-hmm. or, or or that whole to keep the league afloat mm-hmm. and to keep these uh, teams afloat. The, without a doubt, the Chicago American Giants were kind of the dominant team mm-hmm. in this meetup, mm-hmm. and well, financially and on the field. Mm-hmm. Right. And they kind of had the smartest guy in the room yeah. right. running it too. <laughs> well, so. I, think, I think he, you know, he mm-hmm. learned so much from Frank Leland, mm-hmm. and I think that he knew so much in terms of, of uh, you know, he and in, in terms of. Uh, what the white people, uh, major league owners were doing, mm-hmm. and so he had a business acumen that was probably, with the exception of maybe C.I. Taylor, mm-hmm. he had a business acumen on running a baseball club and being a baseball executive that was far exceeds, you know. Um, and then I guess his years playing with Saul White sure. and Walter Schechter mm-hmm. put him ahead of the curve. Right. Okay, so so what was the setup again? Okay, they paid five hundred dollars. Correct. Yeah, for the, they, their league fee. Right. They agreed that uh, Ruth Foster would be the uh, elected president of the league mm-hmm. and receive no salary, but uh, he received five percent of the gate receipts from each team, uh, and he distributed those profits to members uh, to member teams for different expenses, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interesting about this is that. Uh, the charter states of the league were only a few states, uh, Michigan, Ohio, uh, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, and Maryland. So um, they didn't, they didn't uh, figure into the East Coast teams yet. Yeah. But they yeah. just had these, just the basic teams like the Detroit Stars, uh, the Indianapolis ABCs, uh, the St. Louis Giants, the Chicago Giants, uh, Chicago American Giants, uh, the Kansas City Monarchs. Um, the Dayton Marcos, they were representing the inaugural season, uh, which started, I guess, around 1920. Mm-hmm. Um, the following season, um, they added um, the Hilldale Club of Darby, Pennsylvania, who was run by a man by the name of Ed Bolton. Um, also, the New York Baccarat Giants. Here we go again with the Giants. Now. Yes. <laughs> and, and the Columbus Buckeyes also joined the league at that time as well. Um, so, so Rube Foster was truly a, a, an exceptional baseball executive. But um, as time went on, I think that uh, you know his health started to take its toll on him, as he was the president of of the league, as well as uh, having his hand in the other teams as well, uh, making sure everything was going okay. And during this time, you had teams that were going in and out of the league as mm-hmm. well. Um, some teams dissolved, some teams came in, some teams came back, some teams yeah. left. So um, it started to take its toll on uh, Ruth Foster. Um, Around 1925, um, you know, Rue Foster uh, almost asphyxiated himself uh, in a gas leak in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, yeah, his, this is where the story becomes somewhat uh, tragic. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, his his behavior started to get erratic, and um, 
a little disillusioned, and he was uh, committed to um, yeah. an asylum because he had a physical, a psychological breakdown at this time, uh, and he was confined to the asylum literally until his death in um, 1930. So, uh, yeah, so it's uh, yeah, a, a, a very sad ending to really a brilliant, uh, brilliant career mm-hmm. um, on the field and off the field. Yeah. Um, so the Negro National League, uh, the, the initial Negro National League, you know, it only lasted about six years. Yes. Something like that, up yeah. till 1926, I think. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, about 1932 is when Gus Greenlee with the Pittsburgh Corpus decided, and he's like, with Cumberland Posey, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, Tom Wilson uh, of, the Nashville, of Nashville, the doctor in Nashville, uh, uh, they formed the new, uh, new Negro National League. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, yeah, about 1933, yeah. Two, yeah, 32. 30, yeah, 33, and, uh, yeah. And then that lasted yeah. pretty much to, uh, for another 12 years until maybe, I guess, um, I guess, say 1946, 47. I mm-hmm. mean, it went longer, but that was the heyday because by that time, Jackie Robinson had, you know, Giants had, I mean, the Dodgers had signed Jackie Robinson. And then, you know, um, there was, you know, Bill Beck signing Larry mm-hmm. Doby and then, mm-hmm. you know, Don Newcomb. So, yeah. And then some of the teams we probably haven't mentioned here that were later, like the Newark Eagles. Yes, exactly. And just to also to mention other league, the Eastern Colored League, right. um, also didn't last that long. No, um, I mean, well, that was when they had the, the, uh, 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 the first uh, Negro League World Series. Mm-hmm. Um, um, around 1924, 25, yeah. you yeah. know, that with Hilldale and Kansas City, that was the, basically the Negro National League and the Eastern Colored mm-hmm. League playing in a, in a World Series. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and they lasted from about 1923 to 1928. Yeah. And they had teams like the Lincoln Giants yeah. who ended, right. ended up there for a time. Right. The Homestead Grays were in the Eastern mm-hmm. Colored League. For a little, uh, for a while, for a little while, <laughs> for a little while, yeah. <clears throat> but really, kind of all became the um, the makeup. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the really the 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 uh, uh, the new Negro National that's League. That's 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 yeah. they, yeah. These teams all tended tended to gravitate mm-hmm. toward that eventually. Well, some of the ownership, like Ed Bolden, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, of, of Hilldale, was later, you know, in the new Negro with the Philadelphia Giants and mm-hmm. what have you. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so, I mean, this, these are the beginnings of the, the, the sort of legendary team names that we, you know, grown up, if you know anything at all about this incredible era of baseball, the, 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 the teams that we're talking about this league, this is where they started. Uh, there were, there were all-star games, as I recall, um, a series of Negro World Series, Uh, I mean, what we haven't talked about uh, to some extent is business practices. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty hard to find like how many games there were in a season. Right. Um, uh, it changed a was, lot. Yeah, the season was sometime in many cases broken down into two parts. Yes, and they there was yeah. a uh, well, there was like a first half right. and a second half yeah. winner. Yeah. Uh, uh, certainly in the. Um, uh, the original Negro National League, the 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 uh, Chicago American Giants had dominated. Mm-hmm. I think they were the first. Three uh, pennants, if I'm not mistaken. Well, they, they, yeah, I mean, they were really dominant almost for nine years. Yeah. So. 
And, and what we didn't talk about also was the style of baseball. As I recall reading many years about it, it was speed, it was bunting, mm-hmm. it was getting on base, it was taking the extra base mm-hmm. relentlessly. Mm-hmm. It was a track meet. Right. Uh, you think about it now, it might be pretty interesting baseball to watch today. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot more stealing going on. Yes, <laughs> you know? and there was bunting mm-hmm. and um, and very, uh, yeah, it, it was just a different game mm-hmm. uh, than the power game that we see that's kind mm-hmm. of taken over baseball these days. Yes, right. yes. Uh, um, uh, so uh, we can only dream about what it might have been like to watch and hear those games. But we do know that there were giant crowds. Oh, yes. Uh, these teams played very often in uh, major league stadiums, right. and they drew major league crowds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so this is just a little bit of information, really, about you know two key people uh, that really have made it possible for this sport. Uh, you know, really for the great players that didn't get a chance to play mm-hmm. right. to play on a major league level with other black players, right. And you know, it ultimately paved the way for Jackie Robinson. Of course, yeah, of course. Of course. So uh, look, this is it, this was uh, fascinating. Uh, you guys got uh, too much information, <laughs> people. We could go on and on here uh, for a long while, but you know what? We'll be back very soon with another episode. If not about baseball, believe me, it'll be about something really exciting, something historic about the African-American athlete. So thanks again to you guys, to Francis and and Chuck. Thank you you very much. And um, we'll be back for another episode of uh, Sierra Athletics Media. So thanks so much for listening. Thank Thank you. you.